Motopod, proudly supported by Roadskin, a UK label specializing in protective outerwear for motorcyclists. Modern biker clothing that you can wear all day long and engineered to save your skin. For the road, for life, visit roadskin.co.uk. to Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 749 for November the 22nd, 2023, covering the next to last race of the season from Qatar. And let me tell you, folks, this is special because Rich is in Qatar. Rich, come on, give us some deets. We got to have the tea, as the kids say. (laughs) Well, first of all, Jim, I mustn't forget to say happy Thanksgiving to you. And the rest of your nation. Thank you, sir. Thank later you. this week. Yes, LaSalle circuit, Doha, the city, Qatar, the place has been a wonderful, absolutely wonderful. I mean, I think that's the best word to use. People are really kind and polite. Obviously, the facilities there are very, very modern. I had a kick-ass thunderstorm on Thursday night, <laughs> which caused a lot of flooding, which was not what I expected. Uh, it doesn't rain here very, very often, but when it does, it really does rain. Obviously, the circuit itself from the facilities in terms of the paddock has benefited massively from Formula One rolling through town uh, in recent times because they completely redeveloped it. So it's all pretty much brand new and it is, you know, state of the art. So I think probably as a first experience of getting into the paddock from the point of view of, you know, Dawn very kindly supporting Motopod uh, and giving us an official media pass. Probably it's only downhill from here in terms of future appearances because I dare say that the paddocks and the facilities at some of the tracks in Europe in particular are probably pretty pretty basic. But um, yeah, overall, a a massively positive experience. And as I said to you just before we started recording, it's really highlighted to me that the things that you regularly hear about the sort of sanitised, joyless, unfriendly, unwelcoming kind of GP paddock, that has not been my experience at all. Pretty much to a person, everybody has been bending over backwards to be helpful, considerate, polite. People that are following us, hopefully on the social media channels, will have seen me milking it for all of it, all it's worth in terms of pictures and stuff. Because spent a lot of money to get there, <laughs> so I thought, well, I might as well make a make the most of it. And so I did turn into a, a gurning fanboy and a sycophant, but it's very hard not to. Uh, but it's funny just before we talk about things uh, properly. I turned up on the Thursday, which was the sort of the pre-event press day when I did most of the interview work, certainly with the riders. And, you know, you're just sort of awestruck everywhere you look. There's a person you recognize, you know, from the TV and there's Mark Marquez and all these people. But by Sunday, you kind of start to get into the flow of the fact that you're just in this environment and it's all quite normal. So it's funny how your perception changes, even after a fairly short period of time. But yeah, Mm. 100% positive. I say I'll keep on, uh, although it took a lot of work and they took a lot of persuasion, once Dorna sort of said, okay, we'll give you a pass, it's been brilliant. You know, the access has been second to none, really. Uh, the teams, all the press officers have been brilliant. Obviously, well, not tonight, because we're on a very short time scale to do this. So this is just a quick in it, Jim. But we'll, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. I've got so much material, it's going to fill up shows and shows of stuff. So I think most of that will lend itself to some, you know, like a rider special, a team manager special, and then some of the cool. ad hoc stuff. Because like, for example, I bumped into the likes of Tony Elias was in 
in the paddock. Uh, he's starting to do some work with Grassini, funnily enough. So hmm. I did some ad hoc stuff with people that wouldn't necessarily have been on my list of people to talk to, but they were there. So I grabbed them, you know, in some cases just for two or three minutes, but there's at least three shows worth of material. And then I've got, because I was in the media center, I was able to record most of all the rider debriefs on each of the days as well so whilst i wouldn't necessarily suggest that all of those will be put out some of them were quite interested in the level and type of feedback that the riders give uh, particularly after the main race on sunday for obvious reasons so because there was lots of differing opinions so yeah you and i will have a chat offline about how to do what to do when to do and all the rest of it but lots and lots of content to put out uh, once we get into the quieter part of the season so yeah great that's yeah, good stuff. All right. So since we got some impressions that are there, I do think it's going to take a month of Sundays to wipe the smile off of your face because <laughs> you were just riding on a hot. Yeah. And I, I get that. That's I, I understand when I was running around moto, had a pass just to do Moto America. Same thing. It's like, well, you wait a minute. You're Josh Hayes has acknowledged you as a person. Jay Gandhi is like, hey, stop in. We'll sit down. We'll have after practice today, sit down. We'll have a chat. You're simultaneously awestruck and like fanboyed but you're like i need to focus and do this for you guys fans of the show but it's just weird place that you're at and i'll, I'll be I totally honest I, I was very 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 nervous you know about doing it as well because you know you're swimming in with the big boys and girls on this one so and i'm not a professional journalist i mean we're not are we this is a hobby and a passion which we yep. share with the motorpod listeners i mean we were like motorpod listeners and Still are because I still listen to the shows, even though we're the ones that <laughs> take part in them. It's Me bit, too. Bit bizarre, hard to break the habit, really. So, yeah, sorry for the kind of melting into a sort of a gibbering wreck of uh, enjoyment or whatever the term is, but hard not to really. But uh, and I, I, the other thing I must say because I don't want to forget Jim, and I will forget otherwise. There was a big crowd at the event all weekend. Oh, good. Even the sprint race was very well attended on the Saturday, and the Sunday crowd alone was bigger than the whole weekend attendance last year according to the stats well, that I saw. So the idea that nobody goes to some of these flyways, which I've been guilty of saying in the past, you know, that Formula One and MotoGP and other, they chase the dollars, you know, in terms of some of these countries who've got the resources to sort of pay to have races. And it is true, I think, with regards to Qatar race in particular, being one that probably did have quite badly empty stands, certainly in the early years, but that was not the case on Sunday, for sure, because I went out and actually watched the races from the stands and I even walked down to the turn one seating area as well and it was pretty full so yeah they're doing some good stuff there and it was well attended well we can only hope that when we get back to coda this coming year that there'll be more people than what there has been because i i believe the years that i've been going to coda it is seriously reduced in its size and stature well silverstone i think is the same as well i mean silverstone had a disappointing crowd this year now silverstone obviously always has the problem that people are expecting the weather to be cold and wet and it's quite often that is the case so it does that does give people pause for thought, even though it's in August, which should be the better time to do it. But that's the British weather. So you don't have that as a barrier here. So no, but it's interesting. And one of the people that I have managed to connect with, I, unfortunately, I didn't get to speak with him because I just didn't bump into him all weekend. But I will try and get hold of now is Dan Rosamundo. You know, this new guy that's come in from the NBA, I think it was, wasn't it, Jim? Yes. To talk to him about, you know, what the strategies are now for marketing the sport and, you know, getting the viewership uh, and, you know, the bums on seats aspects, race to race, getting some insight into what's going on, because clearly it's working in some places and harder in others. So that's an interesting thing to try and get into perhaps over the off season. Yeah. Well, we must get to the reason we're here, which is to talk about the racing. And we also start with Moto3. Just quickly, quick qualifying. Munoz, Nepa, Rossi, Fernandez, Ferrasado, and Bertoli are all there in that first session. 
eventually it becomes Farrelly, uh, Adrian Fernandez, Furasado, and Bertelli that move on to that second qualifying session. Second qualifying session, I will say this, I could not believe it. There were so many Moto3 guys that were pretty much stopped on trackside. There was people who had feet down. I'm literally aghast by some of that. That that really should not be happening. But at the end, Holgardo was on pole, followed by Marrera, Anchu, Sasaki, Vire, and Adrian Fernandez. So that is how we had the Moto three qualifying. We get to the race. The big thing right off the bat, they held them. They held the lights for what I thought was an exceptionally long amount of time. I mean, I've, I've watched a lot of these races, and I'm like, "Ooh, what's going on? Is there some problem that's going to cause them to put a red flag up and yeah, send them out for another warm up lap or whatever?" Because it just seemed like there was an extraordinarily long amount of time that they were being held. Apparently, that was just what they wanted to do. And it caught out Anshu because Anshu jumps. He makes the move at the beginning. He obviously gets the first turn first. Like, if you leave before everybody else, you have a good chance of actually doing that. He did succeed at that. <laughs> he was followed by Jorgardo, Marrera, Sasaki. Then Anshu went wide. Like, I don't know how he wound up going wide. And then everybody sort of goes crazy for the first couple of corners sasaki is getting pushed back and everything is just all mismatched you like if somebody's ahead somebody counter strikes and comes right back again which you know that, i think that's like the theme of this whole entire show is punch counter punch because it was like one thing would happen next thing would happen then somebody would go for it somebody goes back anyway immediately Anchu was given a double long lap penalty he later on said he knew he was in trouble so he just wanted to put his head down and try to get out there so Anchu then i think by lap two starts to take the first of his double long laps, and then he takes his next one on lap three. Meanwhile, Holgardo's out front there. Uh, Masia has gone from, like, his 10th starting spot, because I think it's where he's, yeah, he started at 10th. He had gone from 10th. He had made his way to 4th. He backed his way up to, like, 2nd. And, like, wow, this is a lot of pace from Masia, who didn't really seem to show much pace in qualifying, although his practice times were pretty good through the week. But the biggest problem with gauging what was going on with Moto3 was just a track. The track was very dusty. It's brand new pavement. It had to be rubbered in. And for whatever reason, the Moto3 guys just couldn't seem to go faster as quickly as Moto2 could go faster, as quickly as MotoGP went faster. And it's just odd. I have no idea why. No, no real rationale other than maybe Dunlap went with a more conservative compound or construction or something for this because of the new pavement. But it was just interesting that they just could not seem to find speed uh, as quickly as there was. So we get to the first point of First, really big talking point. We're at lap 14. Masa goes under Sasaki, and he, they both run wide. And at first glance, I thought Masia had outbraked himself. He was in a little bit too deep into six. Sasaki was leaving that door open, and as a racer, you would go take that. There wasn't necessarily contact, but I was like, wow, that was really pushed way, way out there, allowing half the field to go flying by because we're only three laps into the race. My first notation is, did he really outbreak himself or did he actually try to run Sasaki off the racetrack? Because when they took a second, because again, everything's happening quickly, and they showed a view from, I think it's a helicopter that's sort of following the bikes. You see it from behind the riders. Yeah. It literally looked like Masia had turned into the corner, was under Sasaki, and then simply stood the bike up and rode straight off with Sasaki. Well, okay, maybe... There's some mitigating circumstance in this that I did not know at the time. So I'm like, wow, that's why I have this question. Do you really just run this guy off the racetrack? 
Were you able to see any of that in the media center, Rick? I was sat out in the stands for the races because okay, okay. You know, I was in the media center pretty much all the rest of the weekend. I was getting very frustrated with the fact that I'd gone all this way and I hadn't actually seen a bike out on a track. So it was like, <laughs> I don't care about being in the media center anymore. I want to go and actually watch the bike races because at the end of the day, we're fans, right? And I want to see right. bikes, particularly when they're racing. So yeah, mm-hmm. I was in the main grandstand, so I didn't really notice the or the, the held start because I was sort of a bit further up the track towards gotcha. the sort of the, the end uh, final turn on the course. So I, although I was looking at it on the big screens, I haven't had time since to actually watch the races back on my computer so so that I could see things in more detail. But like you, I thought mm, that looked like he'd outbroke himself. So like most people, you probably were thinking that was a bit of a tough move. Maybe he got it a bit wrong. You give people somebody a bit of a let on that one, mm-hmm. but then as you're about to tell us, go on, Jim. <laughs> well, Sasaki then rode back to the front because he had speed, he had pace. He was followed by Masa and Munoz, and Alonso is now in the front here with Ortola and Vire's coming along. So at this point, Masi is kind of being outgunned because I guess we never really stated why this is a problem. And that's because in the championship, it was the way the points worked out is if Masia were to win, Sasaki had to be fourth or better. If Sasaki is not fourth or better, then he, then he, as in Masia, would become world champion. So, okay, so where is all this going? Well, we get to like 10 laps to go, and then Masia runs into turn six again, deep, with Sasaki on his outside in a carbon copy move, to which now it's obviously blatant that what he's trying to do is run Sasaki off the track or put him far enough back in the pack that Sasaki is going to be incapable of recovering to finish fourth provided that Masia would win the race. Okay, now that we know this happens and we see a carbon copy of the exact same thing again, now Masia gets a conduct warning from race officials. Now they had to do something. There's no way around it because this was now getting ready to become ugly. However, I can hear all the screaming about, well, he should have been disqualified or he should have had a time penalty or whatever. And we'll kind of save that, I think, for the end of this, Rich, and we'll just sort of continue on. Yep. Uh, eight to go. Horgardo's still out front. Sasaki's still running second. So even though he's been shoved off the track twice by Masia, he's still in second place ahead of Masia, who Alonso is running third. Masia is next, then Munoz and Vieira. Um, Ortola gets a two long laps for responsible riding. Him and Marrera had a little coming together with put Marrera down, I believe, completely. Can't remember. Yeah. Exactly. Again, he fell off and remounted, uh, didn't he? Yeah. Okay. He fell from. I couldn't remember if he just ran him out really wide or if it was a uh, crash and then a remount. But we had that happening. Sasaki's still at the front. You know, six to go. Sasaki's right there. Hogardo, Alonso, Masi. It sounds the same thing. Vire's there. Well, okay. Is Vire going to wind up helping his teammate? You know, if anybody's sort of outgunned by anyone, it's Masi. He doesn't really have anybody there to help. Although he does have, you know, Hogardo's got a KTM, right? That's a clone of Husqvarna. His other Husqvarna teammate, Vire's there. So, okay. You know, in all this, really, he is, Masi is the lone Honda against a horde of KTMs. Five to go. Still Horgado out front, still Sasaki. Masi is now running second to that, but all of a sudden, Adrian Fernandez has joined the party. Now, Adrian Fernandez is right behind Masi. And granted, they'd been coming in. And again, this track, it's very hard for the Moto3 bikes to separate themselves. They all seem to want to just cling together because it's very high-speed corners, very long straightaways, and that draft just pulls everybody along. And so this thing was a, I want to go with about a 12-rider train of bikes that was capable of being either on the podium or at least winning or being on the podium that was there. So we got down to about three laps to go. Uh, It's crazy at this point. Fernandez has now kind of stood him up at turn six as well. So now it becomes a blatant idea that Leopard 
is trying to use team tactics to stall Sasaki at this point, which, you know, is it's pretty interesting because Sasaki and Masi are having a pretty amazing race. And of course, as this happens along, Fernandez is right there with them now. So that's, that's sort of like, well, Vire's there too for Sasaki. So you have all the teammates that are in play with each other, sort of at this little moment in time. But that last move by Adrian really put Sasaki down. Sasaki was now way back in eighth. And Masia was out front ahead of Helgardo and Rossi and Alonso and Anchu, who just reappears at the front. I mean, we had no indication that Anchu was coming at all. Although if you were watching the screen and, of course, your attention is at the front, the, this race with Sasaki and Fernandez and Masia and Vire is so entertaining that you're watching there. But if you watched in the back, you could see the KTM of Anchu coming. Yeah. Right, he's coming, but it's like, well, what's going to happen? Where is this going to run out at? With two laps to go, Sasaki's now back to ninth. Things go from bad to worse for to Sasaki. I don't know what happened here. He was run off again. I get the frustration, but was that frustration, or was there the tires were now dirty or ruined, or they destroyed? I'm not sure what was happening, but things go bad to worse. As it turns out, Masia then wins the race ahead of Alonso. Sasaki had a moment where he was almost down at 13 on the last lap, which would have did more damage as he went backwards. But that means because of how they finish with Sasaki well down, he finishes six. So the running order is Masia, Alonso, Anchu, Rossi, Bayer, and Sasaki, which means that Masia wins the world championship, although being on questionable terms. Rich, would you like to have the first crack at your thoughts on Leopard's tactic? Well, I think not that social media is ever a good gauge of places to go for informed and considered comment. It's true. But in this particular case, I think you only have to sort of scroll through all the stuff that MotoGP and the Leopard team themselves have been putting out just to see the overwhelming animosity there is towards the team and, and Masia on this one. And whilst you can argue that what they were doing wasn't illegal to the rules, although he did get a conduct warning after that second uh, repeat literally repeat offense and it's absolutely clear what he was doing and why he was doing it because he as you said quite correctly jim he's deliberately sat the bike up to send them both wide i mean for me that was kind of already long lap territory what was more egregious and you didn't mention so i don't know if you didn't really spot this but i'm quite sure and uh, happy to be proven wrong on this but when adrian fernandez got involved in the fight and kind of picked sasaki up as well in turn six it was clear to me that he then deliberately slowed down in the subsequent couple of corners because if you remember suddenly there was quite a big gap that Sasaki had to get across and that's why he was pushing so hard to try and get back to fourth that he almost high-sided himself because he knew that he had to get it on that last lap and he had to bridge a big gap that gap wasn't caused by a crash it was caused by Adrian Fernandez riding slowly somewhere in there I thought Fernandez had a long look over his shoulder to figure out where Sasaki was and then the cameras kind of break away yep and we go back to what's going on at the front. So I missed what happened after. So that fills that in for me. <laughs> I'm quite sure that that is what happened. Now, as to whether or not that was kind of a spur of the moment thing, I don't know if Adrian Fernandez has a contract with Leopard next year, but, you know, he's been yes, in and out of the does. championship a bit over the last... So, you know, he would have wanted to ingratiate himself to the team. But I just thought it was very dirty and underhand and i've since sort of postulated on the twitter feed my one not the official motorpod one because this is my personal opinion that 
Although, funny enough, ironically, the weather forecast in Valencia looks pretty reasonable for this weekend. It looks as if it's going to be dry and sunny and reasonably warm. But I, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking that Leopard had sat down and thought, look, we need to win this championship today because if we turn up to Valencia and it's wet, that will favour Sasaki because the Japanese riders historically tend to go better in the wet than the Spanish riders do. So I think they had a plan to pull out every possible stop to try and nail the championship, which obviously they did but under very questionable terms. And as I say, if Twitter stroke X is anything to go by, and I suspect most of the other social media channels are very similar, they're getting absolutely lambasted for it. Now, once the dust settles and, you know, a year or two down the line, people will just say, oh yeah, Joe Massia, Moto3 champion in 2023, and people will kind of forget the detail. But as things stand right now, it's a very, very unpopular win. And I think deservedly mm-hmm. so, because I think it was underhand. Yeah, that's... We always make these comparisons. We always draw a comparison to Formula One because it's the only other high-end constructor-type championship that you can go by. And if you think back to the Schumacher era, and especially back to his days at Benetton and like 94, that 94, 95, first couple of championships, Schumacher was notorious for being on pole and moving to the opposite side of the track to block anyone that was starting second. And people became incredibly agitated by what Schumacher was doing. Schumacher would look at you and go, hey, I am entitled to, since my car is in front, I am entitled to drive where I want to drive and I'm allowed one move. Therefore, my move is to block you going into the turn, which subsequently now everyone seems to play that game in Formula One. Motorcycling, to me, is not cars, but technically what Masia and the team did is not against any rule in the rule book. There was a conduct warning because there's a conduct issue there, but there's not there's not a rule that says you can't ride somebody out to the outside from what I can see in the rule book and the way I interpret the rule book. But that goes against everything that I think motorcycle racing is as far as how we conduct ourselves on a bike. And I think it's a lot different to be sitting inside of a carbon fiber tub or a chromoly steel roll cage with four wheels around you. You can be I don't want to say braver, that's not the right word, but you can be more inclined to do something that's incredibly aggressive because you are generally not going to have a problem with the car. You're going to be safe inside of that. You try doing these kind of tricks on a motorcycle, you're going to tangle a clutch or a brake lever or a handlebar and everybody's going to be down in front of a roaring pack of 20 more bikes to which if you're online and that happens, you have a great great propensity to be hit or struck by another motorcycle and the ride or something like that, which is uncalled for. Should he have been penalized by, you know, given a long lap? I don't know. I'm, I'm not, I'm glad this is the one time I'm glad I am not sitting inside of that steward's box and trying to make this decision based on what I see there. I would hope that Freddie Spencer or someone would go have a very, very long and frank conversation with Masia, with Fernandez and with the team and say that's not how this sport is run. I still think that this is very much a handshake is everything kind of world and your actions mean more and you have to sort the bad egg out. And back in the day, I think this would have been sorted out behind trailers with a couple of fists. Yeah. <laughs> this had been the 70s with Barry Sheen and Roberts or, uh, you know, any even up to like, you know, the time frame, you know, maybe Lawson and Wayne Gardner or something like that. Surely Rainey and Schwantz still, even to that point. But as things become more professionalized, we have to, we don't expect to have to see that kind of attitude from riders, but we do have these things that occur. 
I wish it didn't happen and Mossy just simply ran the won the race and wherever Sasaki finished, Sasaki finished. But we weren't in tune to that. But it is definitely outside of the sporting bounds and and good sportsmanship. That is definitely wrong. But yeah. per the rules, it's not. So no, that's why he didn't get pen- penalized, I suppose, isn't it? I mean, it was the very definition of the professional foul, wasn't it? Which obviously, yeah. as you said, Jim Schumacher took to the absolute extreme and did come off on the wrong side of that from time to time due to his actions. Mm-hmm. I mean, what bothers me slightly here is that either because the stewards couldn't really do anything, because you had incidents with Massey, and then you had incident with Fernandez. Well. You know, so it was kind of split. It was almost like it was a team tactic. I mean, I do believe that is what was going on. So either that they couldn't penalise them or they didn't, which are obviously different things, but it does set a precedent now for future. That's the problem. Mm. And we don't, you know, people will say, oh, yeah, Senna was the greatest Formula 1 driver. Was like, but no, because they the behaviour on track at times was utterly appalling. You know, so if you want to talk about the greatest of all times, you've got to look for people that were brilliant and they were fair. So then you're talking about a Jim Clark or a Sterling Moss or do you know what I'm saying? So we don't want, and what you said is quite correct. I think, you know, a lot of the behavior that you see from younger drivers or people that are at the top of the sport, whether it's two or four wheel, you know, it is based on what's gone before and what's been allowed or what's become sort of the given norm of behavior. And you can certainly see that Schumacher in particular set a standard for dirty driving. I mean, he was a great driver, but boy, you, you know, he was single-minded to the point of being utterly dangerous you, you know on occasions and there was nothing he wouldn't do <laughs> to win a race so we don't really want to see bike sport going that way because as you say it's inherently more dangerous in in certain regards anyway so yeah um nothing much more to say on it really but uh, and the, what, what's so sort of stupid about all this is that Massier is you know on balance he is the worthy champion he's won races this year he's been fast all season he's been a bit unlucky you know he's had a at least one breakdown that I can think of, possibly two, but certainly one in Austria. And, yep. mm-hmm. you know, Sasaki's had a great season and he's a lovely lad. I, I interviewed him, so he'll be appearing on the show at some point in the coming weeks. But he, you know, he finished seventh, I think, sorry, second seven times this year. So he didn't win a race. So Massia, on balance, I think is the deserving champion. It's just a shame that he's done it under what is now such a dark cloud because it's silly. Yeah, considering that he was nowhere at the beginning of the season, Hargardo was the runaway champ. And if you had told me Masia would be world champion against the horde of KTMs, I'd have told you I'd laugh. Yeah. I didn't think it was possible. I think somewhere around Silverstone, when Holgardo still had, what, a 50, 60 point lead at one point? Yeah, and Masia fell off in the race. Yeah. Then Holgardo had his own problems, right? Masia is the worthy world champion on paper. It does not look good right now. It will be in the news cycle until the races are finished in Valencia and we're all testing. And no one's going to care about it anymore. There isn't going to be an asterisk next to his title whatsoever. It's just one of those things that happened. And it shouldn't have happened, but it did. But then again, I can't sit there and say that I wouldn't have tried the same thing considering the fact that I was riding for a world championship. That means everything to a lot of people. It's what drives you, it motivates you. Yeah, I mean, it was me that said it, it'll be forgotten. But uh, perhaps this one might stick in people's memories a bit. I mean, to me, it's a little bit like the Schumacher's 94 championship when he you know, went off track. And knew he had to take Hill out, otherwise he was going to lose the championship. It kind of smacks of that to me. And that one I have never forgotten. And this one I don't think I will personally will never get over the kind of wrongness of what happened on Sunday in my eyes. But it's done. It's in the history books. And there you go. Yep. They're not All right, let's about it. it now. <laughs> so on we no. go. All right, let's leave it there and let us move to uh, Moto2. Quickly, it was been talked about, discussed that Arbolino and Aldiger are being courted by VR46 to possibly replace Marini, who 
the ink isn't dry on the contract, but it seems now like it's far more likely that Marini is going to HRC and VR46 needs somebody to replace Marini on the team. And if VR46 is looking and talking to Arbelino and Oliger, you almost got to believe the Marini thing is actually set in stone or will soon be set in stone. So I thought that was rather interesting from there. Oh, I don't have much to say about qualifying other than Joe Roberts had a poll um, that I thought was interesting. Uh, did make me get the uh, flag out of the box and set it nearby just by some miracle or to happen. Need to learn, Jim, to leave the flag in the drawer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's my fault. I, I will take the blame for this one all the way around because I, you know, after qualifying, I got the flag out of the box. I should have never done that, and I apologize. But um, we went into that, when it went into the race, Roberts got a whole shot. He was followed by Vietti, Outiger, Dixon, Gonzalez, Kinnett. And Arbelino Acosta was starting well back. He had a terrible qualifying. Uh, he was 14th after having a miserable start on the first part of that one. It was crazy that he couldn't seem to make anything work. Now, he, he said how he was going to be full send and he was going to get back up, but he didn't have a great weekend at all. Uh, perhaps maybe a bit too much partying for the 19-year-old in between. Yes. I, I <laughs> There's some, to I me. Mean, yeah. Yeah, I, I would too. I mean, <laughs> I would blame him. I wouldn't blame him, though. So, Kinnett winds up uh, going, moving to second with a great move. Aldegar and Lopez are on their way for a really wide. Those two guys go really, really wide. They were sitting, I think it was at one, maybe. They got caught in the draft, I think, they're, they're at one. They kind of went by. Uh, Gonzalez was up to fourth, which was a good ride by Gonzalez. Kinnett would go to the front following Roberts along. Roberts started to have some tire trouble because he would get on the gas out of the corners, and he, you could see it, the bike would kind of want to slide out. That did create a bit of a gap. So by 15 to go, Kenneth Roberts, Dixon, Gonzalez got a half a second lead over Vietti and Arbolino. Acosta made his way to 12th. You're thinking maybe something's going to happen here. You know, he, he started to turn a fast lap, fast lap kind of a thing. He thought, all right, okay, good, get it here. Roberts having tire troubles out of the seat. He then creates a big gap, which gives Kenneth and the guys a half a second lead there. But then you realize Outiger is flying. Like the kid is absolutely on fire. It's fast lap. Fast lap, fast lap. I think everybody was playing around in like the 158s. Aldegar was playing around in the 157s. And you saw why this kid is being courted for a MotoGP ride. Because Aldegar then puts on an absolute masterclass of coming from behind and literally just running everybody down. And the Bosca score we know is good on saving its tires. So he had grip the whole way. But Aldegar was flying there's no way he's superbly riding dixon has gotten to second so the good on the brit there uh outiger had made his way to third roberts is going backwards like he threw an anchor out and jim put the flag back in the box hoping to reverse <laughs> fortunes that didn't happen outiger eventually makes his way to second i think he was like fourth or fifth at the beginning of like lap 12 by the end of lap 11 he was second uh there was no way he was going to be stopped as he simply went flying by Outiger with 10 to go. Uh, Outiger was on another playing field. He was on, literally on another racetrack. He was on another time zone, another zip code, however you want to look at it. He simply was in the 157s and running away with it. He was gone. Acosta had made his way to 8th. He was 10th, made his way to 8th. Uh, with 5 to go, it's Outiger way out front, followed by Gonzalez, Canet, Dixon. Iagura, a quiet race to put him near the podium uh, than Outiger's teammate Lopez. 
Well, two, nothing really happens then. Agura does get by Dixon with two laps to go. And then Dixon goes back by Agura uh, at turn one on the last lap. Cannon got by Gonzalez, but then Gonzalez takes it back. And then Agura got back by Dixon, which was a good little race on the last lap for everybody there. But Outiger wins by a mile. Gonzalez gets a second, which was great for him. He got off of the fifth place, got on the podium. Kinnett with another podium. Uh, Agura was fourth, Dixon fifth, and Yeti was sixth. Our world champion Acosta was eighth, and Arbolino slid back to tenth. But uh, that is the Moto2 race. There was really nothing. I guess now Outiger has a real shot at third in the championship. Yeah, he does. Point standing, I, I, I forget exactly what it is, but I think it's single digits now. So, it's, yeah, it's, mm-hmm. that's going to be a close run thing on Sunday. Yeah, the fight is definitely there for the for uh, third place in the championship. And I hope Outiger gets it because that boy has just turned the corner and has been fantastic these last, I want to say like last five races, maybe even for the beginning of the the flyaways. I don't think he had the greatest race in Japan, but the Basakura doesn't seem to work well there through history. Listening in to people that know an awful lot more about this than I do, you know, again, <laughs> from the privileged, and I'll use the term advisedly, position that I had over the course of the weekend, a lot of the journalists were pointing out that the Boscoscura is notably very good on low grip tracks. So obviously in Australia, it was wet. You know, the weather was really dodgy. Sepang is quite a low grip track, given the nature of the circuit and the ambient conditions there, let's say. And Qatar is definitely a low grip track because it's so dusty. So it'll be interesting. I mean, let's be clear. Aldega has been on a rip and then some, and he's been absolutely brilliant. I interviewed him as well. So that'll be coming up on the show. Ooh, that'll be a good interview. <laughs> I made the joke when I started the interview with him, I started shaking his hand and I kind of made the point that I was almost afraid to shake it because he's so hot at the minute. I didn't want to burn myself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it'll be interesting to see with Valencia, which I don't know to be notoriously low grip, whether the Calexes will come more to the fore, which might give Aldega a bit more of a trouble and it might give, Dixon, because that's what we're talking about in terms of the third place finish in the championship, a you know a slightly better shot throughout the course of the race. So we don't have long to wait to find that out, do we? Because it's this coming weekend. So, but yeah, not a classic race as is often the case with Motor Two, but some good last lap and last corner dices to savor on. Yeah, so that's it, I think, from me. All right, well, let's move to uh, the big daddies, the Moto GP. First, we must speak a bit about what happened in practice. Aleish and Marie, in sorry, Morbidelli have a coming together, which then requires Aleish to give Morbidelli a smack on the helmet, which I don't know what their whole makeup was there, other than it seems like when we come here, uh, this is different because we're usually the first race of the year here as opposed to being near the last uh, of it. But either way, it wound up giving Aleish a six-grid penalty for the Sunday race, not for the sprint race. Um, no matter where he qualified. And he was pocket was 10,000 euros lighter. So the picture of Rich and Aleish, check it out on the Motopod feed, is pre-Aleish 10,000 euros lighter. So he's got a happy face. <laughs> yeah. so, so I don't know what their problem was, Rich. I just don't quite get it. Again, provided I need to sort of check in with Dorna and tell him what I've got content-wise outside of the interviews that I had been given sort of free reign on. Because I did, as I said, some exceptions, it's true, because I wasn't there the whole time. But I got a lot of the rider debriefs on the friday the saturday and the sunday and on sunday because he didn't debrief because he was in the medical center because he had a spill in the sprint race which we'll come to Aleish, to be fair to him 
and I've been very critical of what well, we both have in terms of his hot headedness. I mean, there was that incident, I forget which race it was in, where he got sent out of the pits and something wasn't right on the bike and he came storming back in, just losing his proverbial beep, 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 beep. And, you know, that sort of thing I, I really find hard to handle. But as somebody pointed out to me, the flip side of that aspect of him, though, is that he gets very passionate about issues that are important, like to do with safety and stuff. So a lot of things have changed because he's one of the representatives in the kind of uh, safety commission and stuff, I think. So his willingness to lose his temper and to bang his fists does have a another side. It's like yin and yang, I suppose, which has resulted in various rules or stipulations or whatever that have been to the benefit of himself and other riders from things like safety. So, I mean, it is important to consider that in the overall context. But what he was saying specific to that incident was that he was saying, just don't judge me on the footage that you see in that corner when he kind of strikes out because he says he was he, he didn't intend he, well he says he didn't intend to hit Morbidelli in the crash helmet he says he was really wanting to just brush him away from him you know on the shoulder sort of thing and it ended up not going so you know you can sort of either accept that that's true or that he's just making it up but the, the point that he made was that he needs to be judged on the entirety of what transpired which was that the reason he lost his patience was that Morbidelli was cruising on the racing line. Now, this is something that Morbidelli has quite a bad reputation for and has been sanctioned for in the past. The two hate each other's guts. I mean, that is patently obvious. So I don't know. It's one of these kind of like six of one and half a dozen of the other sort of situations. But the, the thing that prompted Aleish to do his usual kind of red mist job was bad behavior again by Frankie Morbidelli, who should know better. Because A, you're not meant to do it, and B, he's been reprimanded for it in the past. So, yeah, there is more context to the overall thing when you look at it in its entirety, not just the bitch slap that obviously got everybody's attention and, and, you know, made his pocket or his wallet 10,000 euros lighter. But, you know, it's a big fine, but I don't suppose it's going to cause him too much of a sleepless night. Mm, True. Oh, well, you know, 10,000 euros for them is probably not a lot of money. So, what the heck? I mean, you know, in the grand scheme of things, you are a MotoGP racer, and I, I would give almost anything to have had the chance to ride with the and do what those guys have done. So, yeah, 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 yep. So it's just me sitting on the outside, going, "What are you doing?" But I've had run-ins in club like that with a couple of people that would do things that you would consider on the edge, and you want to go have a talk with them and whatnot. So anyway, let's look at the qualifying that we had going on there. <clears throat> Excuse me. In the first uh, session, Miller. Alex Marquez, Vizeki, Zarco, Bastianini, and Quattraro were all in there. Notably absent, Mark Marquez. He made it through. Interestingly, no, okay, all right. Uh, Fabio had a very huge front end tuck. He almost lost it. Nakagami had a tuck, but he went down. Lots of different between Yamaha and Honda. Uh, one of them stays up, one of them goes down. Uh, Bastianini had a great lap that probably would have put him through to the second session. However, that was spoiled by Lekawona, who was in the way. Which caused the beast to kind of go ballistic, which hot blood Italian, right? Passionate yep. about what you do. Same thing. So, <laughs> same again, though, though this time nobody was yelled at. Uh, it was, uh, which was good. No one lost uh, any more money than necessary for that one. However, Zarco and Alex Marquez both go through out of that session and they get into the second session. The second session, halfway through, DG Antonio was quick. Now, he said early on in the weekend, I'm here to win this race, which, okay. That's sort of what I would call rider speak for what everyone says. Oh, I'm here to win. I'm not here to finish second. I'm not here to finish third or get on the podium or something like that. I'm here to win. But there seemed to be something different about the way DG was backing up what he was saying, right? Because halfway through the session of a second qualifying, 
DG was on pole. Uh, Marini was second. Martin Vinales, Benyaya, and Mark Marquez. Um, there was they had a little bit of downtime. DG had a set a one fifty one eight, which was an incredible lap time. Um, Benyaya was in right there. He was towing Mark Marquez along, and to Benyaya's credit, this time he didn't care that Mark was there. He just simply got on with the job at hand and went for it. Uh, so at the very very end. Marini makes a very stunning 151.7 to snatch the pole away from, D- from DJ, which I felt bad for because Marini came out of nowhere to do it. DJ was second quick. Alex Marquez would be on the front row. Then it was Benyaya, Martin, and Zarco. Interestingly, everyone on the first row was on a 2022 Ducati. Everyone on the second row was on a 2023 Ducati. I don't know what that means. I don't know if it's just happens to be the random look of fate, but I thought it interesting. I mean, everybody thought it was interesting because I think Matt Bird on a diatribe about how that was going on. Well, make of it what you want, people. I have no idea. Rich, any thoughts? I hadn't spotted that, if I'm honest, Jim. I'm probably more inclined to think it's coincidence, but, you know, because everybody was kind of back to zero in the sense, as you pointed out at the beginning, that it was a completely new track surface. So, I mean, I'm sure data is still relevant to some extent, but you are dealing with some fundamentally different stuff if you've got a completely different surface so yeah i don't know um, could be something in it i mean who knows so there's a, a devil's in the detail as always with this sort of stuff isn't it? so quickly was anybody complaining about the curbs because that's no. all formula one drivers did was complain about the curbs and we're not complaining about them with motorcycle interesting whether they changed hmm. the curbs for the bike racing possibly did i, I don't I, know about it. i, don't know. I think they? they might have been doing that at some tracks i would need to double check that but it certainly was not a term or an issue or question that I had come up all weekend long. Well, was that's another one of Jim's theories shot right there, folks, where I Sorry, figured Jim. that given all the fun, no, it's okay. I figured since all the trouble with the Formula One cars, it'd be, you'd think it would be even worse for motorcycles, but I, I haven't watched a Formula One race in two or three years now because it just doesn't excite me anymore. The other point about Qatar is that the racing line, because it's so dusty and because it's new track, and there was a huge, as I said, I can't remember if we were recording or not, but there was a huge thunderstorm on Thursday night. So the not that they'd been out on track at that point, but any rubber that was on the track would have been washed away. So I think probably, you know, they weren't straying very far to the extremities of the track for that reason, because it was so slippy out there. So that might be why curbs also weren't so much of a feature, because I don't recall, and, and now it's true, I, well, I know I did watch all the races, didn't I? Because I was in the stands on Sunday and I sort of, sort of peripherally watched the sprint race from the paddock. I don't remember anybody getting a track limits warning all weekend either. Nope, no one. I don't that remember either something as well that people were staying away away from the curbs but i don't think it's because of the curbs i think it's just because the nature the racing line on the asphalt was very very narrow and you strayed away from your extreme peril all right so if we go into the sprint race marini gets the whole shot followed by alex marquez followed by martin uh then benyaya martin's wide and benyaya and mark marquez get by alex and the and bastianini are right there they're having a ding dong martin is back by ben benyaya after their contact, and then Digia is by too. With eight to go, uh, it was Marini, Alex Marquez, Martin, Digia, Benyaya, and Bender had come to the fore here as well. Martin was out front by lap seven, followed by Alex Marquez. Digia would then get by Alex Marquez as well on the same lap. Uh, Martin is in front of Ben, in front of Marini now. Uh, so with six to go, it was Martin, Marini, Digia. Uh, then Alex Marquez, Vinyaya, and Vinyales, who was coming on strong. Seemed like Vinyales was getting a little better as time went on. You notice now Bender had kind of fallen out of that 
trip of people, which we really didn't see because we were very focused at the front. But there was a cast of characters that sort of revolved in and out in this one. Had four to go. Martine was in control. Digia had gone to second. Uh, then Marini, Alex Marquez, and Pena. The race would finish with Martine winning. Gigi Antonio was on the podium in second. Marini would get a third and have a podium. Then they would have Alex Marquez, Benyaya, and Vinales. And that meant that with Benyaya finishing in fifth and Martin winning, the championship is now seven points different. So what was a 14-point gap has now been cut in half by Martin, and he has his seven points. Again, Martin had had problems all weekend sort of getting the setup on the bike right and was having uh, difficulty. At one point, he didn't even want to go back out on these tires. He just felt like he would crash. They had no grip, anything like that. So for him to come in and win the sprint, I thought was was pretty good. So there's your punch, Martin. And now Sunday, you got to see if Benyaya would have any kind of a counterpunch. Yeah. Anything else for us? No, no, nothing really nah. to say, Jim, to be honest with you. I mean, it was a good race. And Martin obviously huh? pulled off a, a, a notably hard move to get past Banyaya on the first or second lap. I think it was probably the first. From there on in, he didn't look really as if he was going to get anything other than first place, did he? The main interest was, did you kind of stayed with him? And most people were kind of, praying that you could get the win in the sprint because we didn't know what was mm. going to happen on Sunday but nothing much to say about it really but it did obviously set up a tantalizing main race given that the points gap between the two of them shrank to the seven points that you just mentioned mm-hmm. so when we got up on Sunday evening I wanted to get up on Sunday morning well that's me I physically up on Sunday morning to watch the race because it's so far ahead in time for me but uh interestingly Simon Cray for everybody were talking about how KTM was still bringing new bits new visual bits of go fasty stuff to these races we had the carbon fiber chassis that showed up at japan we've now got another exhaust which you know brad wasn't using that exhaust because he didn't like how the torque curve worked with the new exhaust miller was running the new exhaust he liked how that power flow came in and ktm is just working and burning the midnight oil my question to you rich is is it because acosta gets on one of those bikes next year and they want to give acosta the best bike they possibly can or is it just ktm being ktm and they just want to be successful i think it's just ktm being ktm at this point i think that miller and binder are teammates at the works team i think the costa will slot in very happily at gas gas because he'll be partnered up with augusto fernandez again obviously they shared mm-hmm. the season together in motor two and worked very well together and were quite friendly with each other there and interestingly i kind of put this question i have so one of the big off-season shows that we'll put out i mean it's pretty much a show all on its own is my two-part talk with hervé poncheral because he's just the perfect guy you ask him a question and he talks for like 15 minutes giving one answer nice. and you know if you've got like five or six questions it turns into a long old conversation and he's so generous with his time so anyway one of the things that i asked him was talk about the difference between being a an obvious what's the polite way of putting it well satellite squad for yamaha back in you know days of past and very obviously having machinery that was quite far behind, as compared with being what I, the term I used was a semi-works team, which I think is what, you know, the Tech 3 Gas Gas team is. It's So my point of mentioning all of that is that I think Acosta will not suffer for out-of-date equipment next year. I think KTM's whole approach and their, unlike the Yamaha, the reason for mentioning that is KTM clearly have the wherewithal and the desire and the budget to make new parts and to follow the Ducati path, which is to not have wildly different bikes out there. 
the closer the bikes are, the better the data is that you can share all together and move forward. And, you know, clearly Ducati have proven now beyond any doubt whatsoever that that is a model of behavior that works. So that is what KTM are going to mimic. So I don't think Acosta needs to be in the full Red Bull team at the moment or works KTM squad. I think he's, he's going to be well served in the Tech 3 squad. Yep. Also, we learned during the week that Red Bull is leaving HRC and following Mark Marquez to Grissini. Kind of gives you an idea of where Mark is actually finally going to stop in this game of musical chairs, doesn't it? Yeah, that's not a big shock, really, is it? I mean, well, I mean, it's a, an unpleasant shock, I suppose, from HRC's point of view, but they've got money. They've got money. Yeah, they don't need that money. That was obviously a nice to have that came with Marquez. So great for Grassini, mind you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, the, the thing that everybody could start to speculate there quickly was the fact that, well, what are you going to do? Repsol's been on the bike for decades now. At least two decades that I can remember. Well, a decade and a half, probably a good twelve to fifteen years. And everybody says, "Well, what?" Because I know they had it with Duan and Crevier back like in '99 or something like that. I think, or a little before that. It was earlier than that because I was looking, actually I was looking okay. at this yesterday because Rothmans sponsored the team up to '94. Then in '95, yes. they kind of had like a version of Honda branding on the bike. Which is one of the prettiest NSR 500s ever that Dewan has. Well, that might have been 95. Did I say 94? That might have been 95. So I think the Repsol first appeared in 96. I'm pretty sure. Okay. One of the listeners will definitely fact check me on that. <laughs> but either 95 or 96 is when Repsol appeared yep. on the bike, as I recall. So it's been there a long, long time. Yes. I don't think Repsol will go anywhere as long as there's a Spanish rider. No, I agree. That was sort of, that was sort of the reason, right? I mean, you had yeah. Crevier sort of brought that to the team when he joined. And when Crevier left, they had uh, Pedrosa at the team, right? So there's another Spanish rider, right? And since then, you then you got Marquez, another Spanish rider. Now you've got Juan Mir, another Spanish rider, right? And you're, you'll have, along the way, they had Italians with them, like Divisioso, maybe Marini. So I don't think it's going anywhere. I don't think is going anywhere. I don't think Repsol was putting up the major bunny. I do think that there was a small amount of Red Bull money there, which I'm beginning to wonder is that small amount of money you know like when i say small like maybe maybe a million euros maybe a million and a half euros i mean not a lot it was basically there to kind of prop up marquez and just because he is a red bull rider mm. where i think it's going to be a whole lot more red bull money going to grassini where that bike's going to look like a red bull bike yeah and not red bull stickers on a bike you see what i I'm think saying? that's right yeah yeah i do yeah i mean the the thing about the hrc squad because don't forget you had kind of like in between Crivier leaving, you went to, you had Biaggi was there, Barros was there, then obviously you had Nicky Hayden. Yeah. So they went for a period where they didn't have any Spanish riders. But I think the point is that although we always talk about HRC, it is fundamentally a Spanish team. It's based yes, out of Barça. I think it's pretty much next to the Catalonia track in terms of where the team is headquartered. So it is a very Spanish outfit, although it runs Honda HRC uh, machinery and that obviously comes from japan and i know that but it's not like they're building the chassis in <laughs> barcelona or whatever but no you know that repsol link from the sort of spanishness thing runs at all levels of the team whether the riders happen to be spanish or not which obviously at the moment one of them is so in terms of joanne mir so i have no expectation that that will change yep all right let's look at what happened in the race so this is a 22 lap event martin had a horrible horrible start the bike simply spun and then slipped and spun. And he was, I, I think Martin was, I don't want to call it lucky, but he, if he would have dropped that bike, cause it was very far out of shape. If, yeah. if he did drop that bike at the start of the race, that could have been extremely ugly. He did not. So he simply just went backwards 
uh, with the bats fire. Uh, basically, Benyana got a whole shot there. He beat Marini, DG Antonio, and Alex Marquez to the first corner with Alex's brother right behind him. Uh, Bender would get by Marquez for fifth. That's Mark. Alex Marquez would move up to P3. Martin was going backwards now. He had slid back to seventh. Benyaya uh, had four tenths on Luca and then Alex and DG. But on the 19th lap, DG moved into third. Then DG on the next lap went up to 18th. Now, Aleish pulled in. Now, he did have, and we did not mention this, he did have a crash in the sprint race. And it was determined after that that he, he had a small fracture on his right fibula, which uh, I believe that is the bone that is in the front from your knee down to your ankle. So it was a small fracture there at the top. It, I would think that'd be painful regardless of whether it's a small fracture or not. Just if mm-hmm. he got on the bike and rode uh, is means he's way more of a man than I'll ever be. So hopefully he uh, can heal up and can ride in Valencia this coming weekend. Um, I don't think it'd be fully healed, but at least maybe swelling pain, that kind of thing can be controlled and he can get back on the bike. So Benyai is out front with 15 to go, followed by Gigi Antonio, followed by Bender, who had raced his way to the front. Again, we're watching what's going on at the front and we're watching what's happening with Martin. So we don't see where Bender is. He just simply appears. <laughs> I want to call him the magician because this whole weekend he did nothing but just show up. I'm like, where's Bender? <laughs> where did he come from? I don't know. I couldn't find him on the track. Uh, followed by Alex, followed by Luca Marini, Martin holding on, and then Marquez is behind Martin, and then Vinales. Now, Vinales would get by Mark Marquez, and Martin with 13 to go was in big trouble. The question I have is, what's exactly wrong with it? My speculation at the time was the front air pressure in the bike was wrong. Maybe that was it. I don't know. But they didn't want to fall afoul of the rule of low tire pressure. But Vinales would get by. Uh, Mark Marquez would get by. Uh, Martin was running in the 55s. And I think everybody else was like running in the low 51s or whatever, definitely in the 52. So he was like three seconds off the pace. Even Quattararo, who had come from way back, because I think Quattararo started like almost basically dead last or very close to dead last, uh, had gotten by Martin with 11 laps to go. Mark Marquez was in trouble too. Now, I don't know if that was because he, he was running wide a couple of times. Was that a front tire issue? Was it a rear tire issue? Don't know. We weren't really paying attention to what he was doing, <clears throat> but he definitely was in trouble as well. Miller got by Martin. Uh, who was now ninth with 10 to go. It seemed like the woes of Martin were going to be absolutely terrible. Uh, eight to go, Benyaya was still leading over DG Antonio, Bender, Alex Marquez, Luca Marini, and Vinales. Quattraro was then next, then Miller, and then Martin. Vinales had then caught the 3-4-5 battle. So uh, riders for the he, he was potentially there for a podium. Maybe a podium was going to be on the cards for, for Vinales. Would have been good to see. I know Gary would have hated it. <laughs> Shout out to Gary. <laughs> but, <laughs> You know, uh, but unlike um, probably Gary wasn't getting worried about it like I would be worried about Joe Roberts winning. So, uh, you know, you knew it was going to happen, what was going to probably happen by that. Anyhow, uh, with five to go, Benyaya is still leading Digia. It's still Luca Marini, still Alex Marquez, still Vignal, still Bender, Quattro, Miller, uh, who has gotten Pat and Bastianini, who have gotten past Martin. Martin is now like 10th, if not 11th at this point. Finally, four, we get five laps to go and we get mapping. Eight appears on Digia's dashboard. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Mapping eight. If we all remember, that was code to let somebody buy at one point in time. However, we did learn later on from, I think, Simon's post-race interview with the team that all Digia wanted to know was when he had five laps to go. And that was the code that they put on there to let him know that they had five laps to go. Are you talking about Simon Crayfar there, Jim? Yeah, I think it was. So there's a couple of Simons that are involved in this one. So oh, I didn't sorry. hear if Simon Crafer asked him that question, but obviously 
social media again exploded with conspiracies on this. The <laughs> truth of the matter was that this was a joke that Digia and his crew chief, Frankie Carcetti, thought up between each other. And they thought, yeah, they, he wanted that five laps to go thing. So they thought it was, was a funny joke. They would use the mapping eight thing because it was so infamous from the Davizioso oh, yeah. Lorenzo incident a few years ago where Lorenzo just ignored yeah. the order because, you know, he'd been sacked effectively. So he was like, well, sod you. I'm not moving over. I'm going to win the race. Of course, everybody immediately sees shadows in the door, but it was a joke. I mean, it was a deliberate <laughs> kind of... It was, it was meant to rile a few people because Digi is in a tricky position at the minute, you know? Um, but it, yeah. fundamentally, it was just meant to be a bit of an in-joke between the two of them. Yeah, he is uh, He is unemployed as well. So Yes. But yes, it was good. But at that point, then, Digi just went by Benyaya like Benyaya threw an anchor out backwards, and that was that. Now, as he did get by... And then they came down the long front straightaway. Digi's leading. Benyaya is there. And Benyaya sort of doffed his braking a little bit. He said he got a little bit more draft than what he thought. You know, the dirty air from the aerodynamics of the bikes in front causes a bit of problem. Maybe not enough front grip. And Benyaya almost flips the rear of Digi's bike with his front tire. It probably looked closer on tv than it really was but benyaya winds up running wide you were at that in the first turn weren't you rich for the race by that stage i'd kind of walked up to the okay. end of this grandstand so i was near the final turn to be honest at that point but again okay. i saw it on the screen so which is not the same as seeing it for real with your own eyes it's true but it looked flipping close to me i have to say yep so that is basically the race is decided at that point uh, but with one lap to go, Zarco almost took Mark Marquez and himself out with a bold move. Uh, that was really interesting there as well. But the race finished with Digia winning the race. I felt so good for him. He said he was going to come. He's going to win. He did it on a year-old bike. Begs the question what Mark Marquez will do on a year-old Ducati. I Mouth-watering just to see. If he's even just running in the top five and causing problems and havoc, that's going to be fun, irregardless. Then Yaya would finish second. Mark Marini would get a podium. So he double podiums on the weekend, which is really super cool. Did you know, Digia gets two podiums for the weekend. Great. A win in a second in the sprint. Then Yala's had made his way to fourth. Didn't get to the podium. So it's good. Bender, then fifth. Alex Marquez, Quattraro, really good. Then Bastianini and Miller. Jorge Martin would finish 10th. It is now a 21 point lead heading into Valencia for Ben Yaya. The title, with Martin having won the sprint race in Qatar, that guaranteed us that the, that they would have to go to Valencia to decide the title. And now, since it's a 21-point lead in Valencia, it could be over on Saturday as opposed to Sunday. However, it's Jorge Martin in the sprint race. I do not think that this is over until Sunday afternoon in Valencia. Oh, yeah, a decent it. race in the desert, Rich. Yeah, uh, particularly because it looks like Saturday and Sunday will be dry and warm in Valencia, so that won't affect Martin in the way that it might have done if it had been damp and cold. So, because he is the sprint king. Uh, thoughts, Jim? Well, it was a not, not a classic race in the sense it wasn't sort of like loads of great fighting up and down the field, but obviously it was just significant because of the situation that Digi Antonio is in. You know, he's out of a ride. There's a potential ride for him, and there's a lot of pressure if you you know go onto social media again for him to get the ride that's likely to be opening up. We can have a, perhaps have a very, very brief discussion on that, although we're already running over time. But um, yeah, I mean, it was the race was really all about what happened to Martin and the fact that Digia 
just had a stunning weekend and capped it off with his first ever win, which was one race to go and no ride next year, kind of really just amps the pressure up on what can be done to help him or what's he going to do? What Which team is going to step forward? Because there aren't many options left open now, if, assuming that the uh, Luca Marini to Repsol thing is a done deal, which it sounds as if it is. It just hasn't been announced yet. But I mean, it has to be announced pretty quickly because, you know, they're out testing in less than a week and people yeah. that are moving teams have to be on their new bikes. So, you know, they can't leave it much longer. So obviously there'll be announcements this weekend. So we expect the Marini to HRC thing to be announced this weekend ready for the test on tuesday i think it will be yes tuesday yes and that will obviously open up a vacancy at vr46 now interestingly talking to simon patterson over the weekend who sort of has a encyclopedic knowledge about all of this stuff there's some what's the word and again this is sort of speculative but based on some you know decent insider knowledge of the history and Air Bastianini and Fabio Di Giantonio are two Italians that famously didn't come through the VR46 route. Now, I don't know why they didn't, but they didn't. And it was suggested to me by more than one person that there's a, perhaps a degree of mild animosity towards them in that regard. And this might be behind VR46. Also, no, Di Giantonio is not up for this ride. Hmm. Now, the, obviously, the talk is about Aldega going there. Well... Aldo might have just been having a sweet spot because, you know, the nature of the track's been low grip and stuff, although he's clearly a massive, massive talent, and he will come to MotoGP within a season or two, for sure. But it does strike me as quite bizarre that you've got a, a fast Italian who has now won a race on the Ducati is not is being overlooked by a team that is there to promote Italian talent, even mm-hmm. though he didn't come through the VR46 route, it's true. But True. it seems a bit churlish if that's the reason why he's not being considered. Because even if you just gave him a one-year contract, which I'm sure he'd be happy with, because then he'd be on the right contract cycle with most other people in terms of renewals for 25 and beyond. So it kind of makes such logical sense to me for everybody concerned. It, it, it's baffling, really, that, that it's not happening or or that it hasn't been announced to happen. But it might well happen, because obviously VR46 aren't going to say anything until Marini's whereabouts next season are officially announced as well so it might be that the cards do fall into place and hopefully last weekend we'll have at least done something to make that more of a likelihood but there's clearly some history there is the point i'm making that is preventing it from being an obvious thing to do i think that's the point yeah well there's always politics Uh, your passport means a lot it means a lot to dorna you know which is weird that they do you know you seems like the championship is, is dominated by by Spanish riders, by Italian riders. Interesting to see if they actually try to do something with Moto America to get another American over. I mean, we, we have we have SDK, we have Joe Roberts. So we shall see what happens there. But it is weird that DGA isn't going to have a ride. A guy who I think has performed massively well this year. I mean, you want a GP race. That says something to itself, right? That you were able to do that. Not many people can say, I've won a MotoGP race. You beat Jim, the he best really, of the best. really won the race on Sunday as well. I mean, he beat Banyan. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was not as if people oh, fell yeah. off in front of him or broke down and he kind mm. of got a lucky win. He won that race by sheer hard work and determination, good bike setup, clever planning, et cetera, et cetera. You know, he's at the end of a two year stint now and he's learned how to ride the bike. And, you know, his results have been improving gradually. You know, ever since he first got on the bike, and particularly in this second half of the season, so he's absolutely the right choice to take on the vacant VR46 bike if and when it becomes available. But again, that doesn't necessarily mean to say he's going to get the ride. But yeah, it would be really bizarre if he didn't at this point in time. Yeah, and the problem is that there's it's kind of like Formula One. There's 20 cars on a Formula One grid, 10 teams, 20 cars, 20 drivers. 
So there's a lot of guys that you can say have talent and should be in there aren't. Just like there's 22 MotoGP bikes, yeah. I think. So you can say there's a lot of guys who have talent who should be there. Now, I did see something on Twitter. I think it was Simon Patterson. Not going to say that it was saying, I wonder what Alicia's contract status is for next year because there's a kid on a Ducati who would probably go really good on an Aprilia. Mm. Obviously referencing Digia, which I, I'm i not going to tell Alicia she's done, but if I'm Aprilia, that's a logical step, right? To go maybe try to hunt down Digia. I mean, could they, even, even if it's just like a few wild cars where they produce a third bike, could they help RNF by putting Digia on a factory contract and putting him in in place of, of Oliveira, who the second half of his season has been horrible, or, you know, get rid of Fernandez, right? Yeah, Raul Fernandez, yeah. He, but he's been doing better in the second half of the season, so it's it really hard to justify. Yeah, tough choice. Yeah, I mean, one... I mean, I, obviously, we're going into the off-season now, but one thing we didn't mention from, yes. the, from the sprint with that crash that Aleix had was that uh, Oliveira was the one that I think that instigated that crash, and he's actually picked up the same injury that Bastianini had, so he's broken his shoulder blade. Correct. That's a long recovery. Yes, it is. So not only does he miss this weekend's race, he obviously misses the test, and it's quite likely he will be at jeopardy of missing the test in 20, or the first test in 2024. All the things I've heard and have read to say that he's now in a race, a battle for fitness for the first round next year, let alone any of the tests in between. Because as you say, it's a nasty injury. And it, as Bastianini has shown this year, it takes a long time to overcome it. So, you know, maybe there could be an opening at Aprilia, you know, in terms of a reserve ride for some of the period of time. There are probably some options. And Didier is going to be pretty hot property after this weekend that's gone. But there aren't that many options for him. But it's hard to believe he wouldn't get offered a ride for the following season, but it depends where he ends up in terms of any reserve or test duties if he doesn't get the, the Mooney VR46 ride. So, you know, we'll find out by the time we next speak when we start talking about Valencia. Hopefully this is clarified. Hopefully. Hopefully. I, that's enough speculation on silly season because there's there's obviously some shows in there where to go through every all the changes that are happening to Moto2, Moto3, where everybody's going, so... We have plenty of time to speculate about all that. I think we're good here, would you say, Rich, for Qatar. That should get everybody up to speed and be have them prepped for Valencia this coming weekend. We haven't talked yeah. about Martin's tirade against Michelin and the rear tire, have we? But oh, okay. I didn't. I haven't seen the tirade on that one. It's uh, being here holed up in the motorhome for okay. this week. Well, so clearly he, on had, he had a problem, and then in the post race interview which i might tag on his interview onto the back end of this i don't think i'll get into Ooh. trouble don't think i'll get into trouble for that but he basically accused michelin of stealing the championship off him oh. as if it's come some kind of deliberate action this is the side of some of the characters in pit lane that you start to think really i mean again lots of conspiracies about interference from ducati or mitch you know no 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 these tires are handed out randomly they're selected as you pointed out earlier to me by erta i think you know they the teams don't get to touch the tyres until they're in the garage for the weekend, you know, and, and then that's where they are. So, but we do know that Michelin have had a bit of a history of problematic individual tyres for one reason or another. But I overheard a conversation in the media room several hours after and Michelin had gone and looked at all of the rear tyres, including Martins, and couldn't find anything unusual about it in terms of graining as compared with anybody else's. Obviously, Martin was very vociferous in his criticism. Morbidelli was quite unhappy with his rear tyre, as was Raul Fernandez. Although Raul Fernandez, as I said earlier on, does seem to be uh, unhappy about most things most of the time, it seems to me. But others of the riders said, no, the rear tyre was great. Funny enough, because everybody went off to the 
main press conference for the top three, which I wasn't allowed into. I didn't have that level of part. Um, so I was left on my own in the media scrum area. And I had pretty much the tail end of Maverick Vinales's interview and all of Joanne Mears on my own. So I got to ask Joanne Mears the one and only question that he answered in the post-race thing. And I asked Maverick, could you have got third on the last lap? And he goes, yeah, yeah, I had good grip. So not everybody was having a problem. And it's not definitely the case that the rear tire is at fault. I mean, he had that problem off the start line, Jim. So maybe he had an electronic problem for all we know. Could have been yeah. all sorts of things going on there, couldn't there? So that's all I've got to say on it before we wrap up. But, you know, that one's obviously going to run and run and run now. Yeah, I didn't realize that Martin had that bit of big of a tie rate against Michelin, but oof. Oh, yeah, we had the whole this is unacceptable, you know, championships being stolen from people in this way, as if there was some kind of malign intent behind it. It might have just been a bad tire. And Banyaya had trouble with his rear tire on the sprint race which he mentioned in post-race as well. So, you know, it does go around this sort of thing. And maybe Martin did have a bad tie, but to say that it's been stolen from him, I mean, you could equally say, well, you stole it from yourself by crashing when you didn't need to in Thailand. True. Anyway. Yeah, anyway. Enough said before we get uh, Yeah, well, that's true. Yes. Okay. So I think that's it now. And yes. we will wrap it all up here. I uh, know it's probably very, very late in Qatar for you. It's middle of the afternoon here for me. But either way, everyone, hope you enjoyed the show. Hope you enjoyed the drama that's there. And be prepared for even more drama uh, when we go to Valencia because it's going to be very edge-of-your-seat kind of a thing. So until then, please ride safe. Beat you next week. Well, I don't know. <laughs> it's difficult to say. It seems like I forgot to ride. And uh, I think you, you could see already in the start. When my rear tire started spinning, it was like a stone. And uh, normally this happens when the track is dirty, that it wasn't because it was the grid. And when the tire have maybe 30 laps, and, it, and it, it didn't because it was new. So you have to, you know, you can guess what happened, I think, by your own. And, and yeah, from that point, I tried to manage a little bit, but I felt I was crashing every corner from the rear. Uh, you know, it's a pity that a championship like this, after such a, a great uh, season working hard. Uh, you, well, I feel like, you know, they stole, they stole it for, from me because I think I, I, I could do it before this race. Now it's really difficult. So you know, uh, whatever. Uh, I think it's difficult to know what happened exactly. Was it clear on the warm-up lap that it was no. bad time? No, no, no. I think it was on the start <coughs> already. You know, I was the only rider in all the grid in all categories that happened this. So for sure. <laughs> Uh, something wrong was on the tire and then you know after I think after three laps I, I understood that uh, it was impossible to, to do the same as yesterday. You speak with uh, the guy of Michelin? Uh, no, that, uh, I spoke with my team it's a pity that this happened to us but uh, I mean for sure I think they need to they need to improve it's, uh, uh, it's unacceptable that a MotoGP championship is decided by a tire. Uh, maybe sometimes happened to Peko. He, he said before, it never happened to me, but today uh, it was difficult to finish the race. I mean, I am happy and proud about myself because I just finished, because it was super complicated. But the bike was okay. Yes, I think so, but when the tire is not working, nothing works. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. So, so it was the same feeling of Friday? Yeah, it was the same as when I, with a clean track. But I was, you know, it's difficult because yesterday I was making 53, uh, easy, not easily, but on from, for pace. And today I was 1.2 from the pace of the race. And I think 
I am a bit faster than that, so uh, it's difficult to understand at the, at the moment. We need to analyze and for sure uh, ask to the to the tire um, provider no? some some questions. Or hey, was it? race of anger or was the emotion frustration well at some point I start laughing because you know uh, it's not that they beat me on the track because with the same conditions trust me that I was able to win today but yeah at some point I was frustrated at some point you know it was like a big relationship but only for 40 minutes I had all the moments but you know I'm frustrated for sure because I think I deserve also this championship and and we lost a big part today or hey, what do you have to do about this? Because we, we hear writers complaining all the time about this, but never it is you know it has never had as much impact as it has today. I think uh, they don't even understand what happened because I I guess uh, they don't want to decide the championship. I mean they want to be competitive. They want to to I I think so. I hope so that they want to give us the same same conditions. But I mean I lost 1.5 seconds of pace in in one day so. I think I didn't forget to write. They they need to improve and they need to analyze why this happened and so so it don't happen again in the future. Hopefully I can battle for more championships in the future. But today I feel a bit lost because it's uh, really difficult now. Twenty-one points into Valencia, Jorge. I mean, it's a it's a big ask to try and recover those points. Well, we I think we can do it still. Uh, Valencia is a uh, at least we go to Valencia. Uh, let's see if we can. Um, we can be competitive. It's a track that I really enjoy. I'm super fast. I've been so fast in the past. And uh, let's see. I mean, it's easy to recover points now. You can see today I lost a lot. So if I if I win both in Valencia, I can have a, a small chance to win it. But it's not about. I think now it's not about this. It's about the. It's about the. How how, you know, this tire changed my the way of the championship because I think today I was able still to recover points.